Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone. Super thankful that we have a a holiday weekend where some people get a break, and I'm super thankful that you all decided to stay here with us. Uh, I'm... I'm not going to lie, I'm super excited to be getting into Romans. I'm, I'm really excited to go through this letter with you. One quick warning, since I know we don't have children's classes, parents, today we will be talking about sexuality. And so I just wanted you to be aware of that. It'll be at the very end of the sermon. And so you can just decide what you want your children to take part in or not take part in. I, it's nothing that I probably wouldn't have said to my kids when they were young, but that, I guess, means you get to judge me at the end of this on how well I did. So, you know, we started out our, our series in James with a quote from Martin Luther, and we noticed how he, he, he had, at least at the very beginning of his commentaries, didn't really see much worth in James. But I want to go back and give him a chance to redeem himself. So here's Martin Luther on Romans. Here's what he says. He says, this epistle, this letter, is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. You know, again and again, Christian theologians, pastors, just day-to-day Christians have come to this letter from Paul to the Romans and are amazed at the breadth and the depths of what he minds and the beauty of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he proclaims here. Hey, I mean, you guys all know this, right? Like I, as, as I'm starting to study through this, you know, the algorithms figure out what I'm doing. And this is what starts to pop up in my feeds, right? Reading Romans is like going to need more highlighters. Uh, this is how normal people think about the, the book of Romans. It's so packed with good messages and things that we should be taking notice of. You know, we're going to see marvelous things throughout Romans as we go through it over this summer through the first eight chapters. And that's one of the the reasons that I'm very excited and look forward to to talking about it. But it's also a book with many difficult sections, difficult words and concepts, which can make it a little intimidating at times, but it's always gloriously pointing us to God. Now, you may be asking yourself then, why then did we, we choose to do a chapter a week? Why not slow down and spend more time on it? It's a good question. And we could have done that as a part of a church that spent seven years in Romans. We could have chosen to do that. Uh, We could have walked through that way, and we will undoubtedly be back at some point to go through Romans a little bit slower. But one thing that we want to consistently do, uh, two things that we want to do throughout the preaching time, is we want to model different ways to read and approach Scripture, and we also want to try to give everyone a broad understanding of all of Scripture. You know, Paul, as he's leaving uh, Ephesus in Acts 20, 27, he says that he taught the Ephesians the whole counsel of God. And he was only there three years. Now, they met a lot more than we meet, and undoubtedly he was flying through things. But, but we want to be able to say something similar, uh, that, that we can pass off the whole counsel of God to the people that are here, uh, that you can see all the glories that God has from the Old Testament to the New Testament and all the different ways that he does that. And additionally, you, know, you, you and I, when we come to read a letter like this, we're usually going to read it like a letter. We should at least. Read it through one straight time at least, maybe two times, three times through, like you would a letter, an email from a friend, and then we slow down. 
We start to sort of take it piece by piece to see what's going on. And that's where we're going to jump in in this series, is that kind of second step. Not the whole all-at-once step, but kind of one chapter at a time and begin to uncover the, the themes and the amazing things that Paul is saying here. And we will undoubtedly not talk about some of, some of your favorite things that you might like in this, and that's okay. That leaves much for you to enjoy and study on your own, and we will be back. So will you pray with me as we dive into Romans in this series? Father God, we thank you that your spirit was at work in Paul in writing to the Romans and that we can see in it the very truth that you would want us to know about yourself, about this world, about our condition. God, would you make this real to us, both those who already know and love this, but also to those who might not yet fully have put their faith in you for what you've done for them in Jesus Christ. Would this letter open up eyes, open up ears, awaken hearts to a fantastic joy and love of the God who has saved them. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, when we, when we look through Acts, in Acts 23, Paul has says that he'd been wanting to come to Rome for a long time. It's been part of a goal for him. In fact, it's one of the places he starts in this letter. We see that he says, For God is my witness, whom I served with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mentioned you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Rome was the place to go in Paul's day. It was the center of all of the culture of the Roman Empire. Uh, there was a proverb that was likely around for centuries that, that was finally recorded in 1175 that said, all roads lead to Rome. I mean, that was true in a physical sense. They had an amazing highway system, getting people from all over the empire back to the city of Rome, but it was also in a, true in a metaphorical sense. I mean, all things revolved around the culture that was set up in Rome and went out from there. Uh, for us, this would be like singers who always want to get to Nashville to finally get a chance to be, to be recognized and found. For race car drivers, it'd be like having that moment to, to drive around the track at the Indianapolis 500. For Californians, it's like getting to Idaho finally. Yeah. For, for people in Paul's day, it was Rome. They all wanted to get there. Rome spawned the culture of the empire that lasted into the 5th and the 6th centuries, and we, we could argue that it is still largely the foundation what was happening in Paul's day that, that is w what spawned most of European countries and our country as well. You know, Paul understood this. Paul wanted to go and engage with this city, with where this culture was being born. And he was privileged. He was privileged to have both a Jewish citizenship and a Roman citizenship. His Jewish name was Saul. His Roman and Latin name was Paul. You know, he, he, he was excited to go where he was largely called to be, which was with the Gentiles, which was what largely the Roman Empire was. They were not Jewish. You know, like James, as we've already said, this was a letter. And Paul likely wrote this from Corinth uh, on his third missionary journey in about AD 57. And Paul is thinking ahead. See, Paul has already covered most of the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. And he's thinking ahead that he wants to now get to the center portion where Rome is. And we even see in some of his writings that he hopes to finally get to the western portion, which is Spain. He's seeing this as a huge opportunity for him, that he is in this place where he can cross great swaths of land and share the gospel with many different people. And his letter is to believers in general, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Yet Paul seems to see his primary audience as Gentiles. Now look what he says right here in 113. He says that he wanted to reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's thinking that when he goes to Rome, he's largely going to be dealing with Gentiles 
just like the rest of the culture all around them. You know, there were undoubtedly ideas floating around during this period, like there were much of the early church about how Judaism and Christianity worked together. How did they, they fit? And we'll see that that's happening here throughout this letter. So Jews are mentioned often by Paul, even if they weren't his primary audience. But because of the dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles, unity is a theme that we see here, but we could identify many other small themes. But the overriding theme of Romans is the gospel. This is a letter about the good news of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us through him. Yes, Paul talks about justification. Yes, Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, but all of those are elaborations on the core theme of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that encompasses all the other topics that we will read about in the letter to the Romans. And that's why we've titled our sermon series this way, Romans, the power of the gospel. Uh, That's what is driving Paul. That is what he wants you and I to see. You know, as we jump into uh, Romans, as as, uh, Laura was reading earlier, thank you, Laura, for reading all that. And thank you to every other call to worship person the rest of this series for reading a chapter a week. Uh, We can see that this is one of the longest introductions that Paul has in any of his letters. My guess is he's been thinking about this for a while. Like we saw in, in Acts, he's longed to get here. He's been thinking about what would he say when he finally meets these Romans. And even at the start, he makes some incredible statements about Jesus. I mean, he says that Jesus is part of the good news of God, the gospel. He says that he was promised throughout scriptures, that he was descended from David and empowered through the Holy Spirit. He says that God has given us all grace in this amazing news and revelation that we might come to know and be called into belonging with Jesus Christ. And so many other letters start with similar introductions that I think we begin to forget about what's being said here. And we can admire people like Paul. We want to have the boldness of Paul. We want to, want to be excited like Paul. And we forget and don't acknowledge the simplicity of why he was so bold. He knew who his Lord and Savior was. He desperately loved and wanted to be in relationship with his God. So the question for you and I can become, if we focused more on that reality who Jesus is, what God has done to bring about our salvation, what would change about how we view ourselves, how we view our mission in this world? You know, if you and I, if we found our identity first and foremost in who Jesus is and what he has done, would we be more bold? You know, introductions to letters are not throwaways. Uh, they're, They're not meaningless banter but rather their insights into the heart of the writer and a glimpse of the joy, the passions, and the desires that they have. You know, I I pray that introductions even of sermons would start to become that way, that people would begin at the very beginning to even see glimpses of how excited people are for God. You know, for Paul, this introduction to Romans is setting the stage not only for what he's going to talk about throughout the rest of the letter, but also for what he hopes is a personal meeting with them. He says this in Romans 1, 11 through 12. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That you'd be mutually encouraged. What a sweet idea. Was that one of the first thoughts that, that popped into your mind this morning when you thought about coming to church? 
that you might be mutually encouraged simply by being here and being around other believers, that, that someone else might use the gifts that God has given them to encourage you for your week and your day, and that maybe by God's grace, you might encourage them as well through what you have been given by God. I mean, I hope we all think about that. I'm so amazed that when I slow down and actually look at the introduction to Gospels and letters, how often I'm convicted even in that section. You know, right here, you know, Paul is sharing his joy and passion for knowing Jesus and sharing him with others, as well as his heart and his desire that, that God's people would be with one another and relate with one another well. Now, I feel challenged from that, j- just from this introduction, to want to love Jesus that way, to view my relationship with my brothers and sisters as that important that I just long to be with them, that I might grow, that I might be encouraged, that I might be challenged. But as Paul leaves this introduction, what we notice is he goes deep really fast. Romans 1, 16 through 17 is one of the main thesis sentences of this entire book. And here's what he says. It's a beautiful truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is excited. In fact, he feels compelled to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Romans. You know, this statement that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe is what Paul unpacks throughout the rest of this letter. You know, in a second, we're going to see how Paul says that all people can know God through his general revealing of himself through creation and in our consciences. But here, Paul is pointing specifically to salvation. The salvation only comes about through the special revelation and knowledge of the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he makes some amazing claims here. You know, first, he says that the gospel is power. There is something very real, very dynamic, very significant that occurs when people hear about Jesus Christ and what he has done. It's significant to you and I today as believers, and it's significant for those who have not yet heard about Jesus Christ. God truly uses the message of the gospel in our lives and those that we share it with. And and he says here that that power comes from God. God is not a distant God. When we share and talk about what he's doing, what he has done, we're also talking about what he is currently doing through that power. The people that he is gathering to himself and those whom he loves, God is at work in strength and power, specifically through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see here that he says that this gospel is for all people, Jews and Gentiles, young and old, friend and enemy, people near and people far from us. All people need this gospel. And then he he says this. He says, we see in the gospel the very righteousness of God. We have to take a little excursion here for a moment. The righteousness of God. This idea becomes huge throughout the book of Romans. And Paul's just barely introducing it here. He just kind of throws the word out. He uses it this one time in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, he is going to explode with this word and all the the words that go with it. So we're going to deal with it in much more depth in chapter three, but we're going to talk about it shortly here. It's, It's a hard phrase to nail down. It's a hard phrase to nail down because Paul uses it in different ways depending on what part of the letter that we look at. And there's three general ways that he talks about righteousness. He talks about it as an attribute of God. 
Think about God as the God of a covenant people who will not give up on them, will make sure that they attain exactly what he wants for them to attain. He's that kind of God. In that sense, he's righteous. He's good. He will do all that he has proclaimed that he will do. But Paul also uses it as a status, a status that can be given to people. It's something that they can, can, can now be said of them. It's sort of a measurement in them of some sort. And then it's an activity. It, it's something can happen. Righteousness can be done. It, it can occur, and in particular, it can occur to us. What you start to realize as you look at this word throughout the letter to the Romans and how Paul is thinking about it is he's thinking about it relationally. For Paul, this idea of righteousness is a relationship, something that occurs with him and God. And we can see how God himself is righteous, but then we also see God's activity in me and you and the status that he gives us in relationship with himself. That means one of the best ways to talk about the righteousness of God is that it is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. That is what righteousness is doing. You know, God who is righteous does something, an activity, to change the status of you and me by bringing us back into relationship with him. Again, we're just starting here. So this is a a definition that'll help you get through chapter one into chapter two, and then we will tackle this even more in chapter three. And as we jump back in then to this section, we see last that he says here that the gospel is from faith for faith. You can imagine a weird phrase like that that you probably can't even figure out what it would mean in English is very debated. It's clear that Paul is trying to quote from Habakkuk 2.4, but we're not quite sure what he's trying to do, but all scholars agree on one thing. What he is trying to point out is that our relationship with God hinges on faith. It is connected completely, utterly, and wholly to faith in what he has done in Jesus Christ. That is what he is trying to say here. These are all amazing claims. You know, Paul is saying that by by knowing Jesus, by having faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ, that we can come back into right relationship with him and only through him. I mean, here at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul is telling a people who had over 67 different deities for every possible condition you could possibly think of that there is only one way, one way to know and come to God, and that it is Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is so excited to share with everybody, which might make it surprising that this is his next turn. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul immediately turns from this idea of what God has done through Jesus Christ, the good news that he has, and instead expands on this idea of what it means to have the wrath of God. You've heard it said before, I'm guessing that to know that good news is really good news, you have to know that there's probably some bad news. I mean, if as you'd come in the front door this morning, if I'd greeted you and say, hey, it's great to see you today. By the way, your house is doing great. There's no problems with it. You'll go home and it's just the same it was. You'll be like, okay, appreciate that. Thank you very much. But then if you'd found out that in your neighborhood, your neighbor's house had set on fire. In fact, it was a five alarm fire. And if I'm right, Jeremy, that's like almost a hundred firefighters showing up to stop this thing because it's consuming the whole neighborhood. But by their work and they kept those flames that were licking across the roofs from ever taking down your particular house and all of the neighborhood, you would have a very different response when I say to you, your house is good. It's fine you will go back to it just the same as it was when you left this morning. That's the same kind of thing that is happening here. We are sinners, 
and we have a grave problem before God because we are not in right relationship with him because of our sin. You know, when Paul and most of scripture speaks about God's wrath, it's usually pointing towards the practical outcome of God's disposition. God's disposition towards those that are not in relationship with him. The reality is that his perfect being cannot be with imperfection. He cannot be in relationship with those who are not walking things out rightly as he would. And he will permanently rectify that situation one day. As we talked about in James, these last days are beginning a time where finally by the end of them, we will see God judge those who are not in right relationship with him. But he's also begun a great hope. He's also done an amazing work that Paul is sharing here. You know, Paul notes that the two main objects of God's wrath are the ungodly and the unrighteous. And those words are paired often in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, and Paul actually gives us the definition here. He says that those who are ungodly and the unrighteous are those who suppress the truth. There are those who, in their relationship with God, willingly try to ignore what he shows us about himself so that we do not feel the need to be in relationship with him. We push him away. We don't let him in. And that's all of us. That's you and me, everyone we know. That is the human condition as sinners. And surprisingly, again, Paul doubles down where you probably wouldn't expect him to. He says that we're all culpable, that we all deserve punishment because there are aspects of God that are plainly known to everybody. Here's what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We talked about this up at the campout several weeks ago. All of creation is screaming to me and you that there is a creator God that made it. You know, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 148.3 that creation praises God itself. In Psalm 8, we see that creation reminds us that God cares for us. You know, in Matthew 6.26, Jesus tells us that when we look at the birds and how God cares for the birds, it should remind us that he is there and he cares for us, that he loves us. Job says this, if you're wondering about creation, he says, but ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of the heaven, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all of these, all of God's creation, does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all of mankind. Creation all knows that God is active, in Job's case, active in, in caring for him still, being active in his life, not giving up on him. You know, whether it's revelation through creation or God's imprint on our conscience, we all know that God exists to some degree, and Paul says that we are held accountable because of that. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that we can see the beauty of the gospel through creation itself. That's the whole point of Romans. He starts where he starts in Romans by telling us that we need to know the beauty of the good news of God in Jesus Christ because creation doesn't declare it to us. But that doesn't mean that we still can't realize we're wrong by what creation tells us. You've had situations like this in your life. You may be taking one of those multiple choice questions on a test that your teacher made. You may not know the right answer, but you know that number D is definitely the wrong one. That's the one the teacher threw in there just to see if they could get you with a really stupid reply. It's the same case here. 
Just because we can't tell the right full answer by looking at creation does not mean it doesn't hold us accountable for not knowing and pursuing the God who could give us that answer. God's creation should make us long to know more about him, to seek him out, to ask him to give us an answer for the problem that we see in ourselves, in the world around us. You know, in this section, Paul keeps using the phrase them. He says it in this verse that we just looked at, and he continues it when he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Things. He seems to be speaking specifically about Gentiles here, us, sort of this them, us dichotomy that he has at times. Those are those who are, the Gentiles were those who were specifically outside of the special revelation of God. That is usually how we talk about this in Christianity. There's two phrases that are helpful to know here, general or natural revelation or special revelation. General revelation is what God shows to all people through his created order and through our consciences with the imprint that still is there from him. Special revelation is scripture. What he shares with us specifically about himself through his prophets, uh, through his apostles, through those who wrote before us. You know, for us, this might be akin to growing up in the church. There, there are many blessings, just like Paul will tell us in chapter two, that there are many blessings for the Jews, having had God's special revelation, but we still are going to fall short of everything that's needed. And so we need a solution. We need a hope and a savior. You know, what Paul is saying here is that even outside of God's special revelation in scripture, we have things that we can know about God and should fully acknowledge his goodness that is knowable. And sadly, none of us wants to do that. None of us wants to fully honor God with what we can actually just see in in creation. None of us thinks rightly about what we are being shown. All of our hearts are darkened. And even worse, Paul says that we know that there is a God that we should serve and we know aspects of what would be good and yet we choose to serve idols. I want to ask you to do something for a moment. Close your eyes. Imagine in your mind a perfectly still ocean. As far as you can see to the left and the right and ahead of you, a perfectly still sea reflecting itself back and forth between the sky. Nothing in your vision in all directions. And what is meant to be the sole object of your gaze in that space, in the middle of all of that, is God himself on his throne, ruling over all aspects of your life. The light of his glory is coming forth and filling all things so that all you can barely see is the train of his robe filling all of creation like Isaiah saw. Miles and miles around, nothing else competing for your gaze, for your affections, or for your joy other than God alone. Yet what do you do? What do I do? We walk out onto that stage that belongs to God alone, and we erect an idol. You walk out there carrying something. Maybe it's an idol of family, money, job, a car, a significant other. You and I, we walk onto that stage and we place something in front of our vision of God. What is it that you put there? What is that thing? Is it yourself, your own joy, your own pride? What have you erected in the pantheon of glory where only God deserves to sit? You can open your eyes. This is what Paul is saying is true of everyone. We all 
deny God what is due his just out of general revelation, let alone the special revelation that we have in Scripture. You know, Paul starts out these last two paragraphs in chapter one, very similar. He says this, he says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in the second paragraph, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. This may seem like a hard thing to stomach in some ways. There is a balance here between personal responsibility and divine responsibility. On the human side, Paul says that we reject God. We reject what God is showing us in general revelation. He also says that God gives us over to the sin that we are choosing. In a sense, God sees us sitting down in the boat of sin, getting ready to go off from shore, and he gives us a little nudge. Now, we see that same type of description in the Old Testament. We see that God gave Israel over to their enemies, that they might be punished. You know, like a judge who hands over prisoner that he might, to the punishment of the crime that he has earned, God hands over the sinner to a terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. I mean, to be clear, God is never enticing us to sin. He's never causing us to sin. His interaction with us in that moment is either engaging with us in love as his children or in punishment for those who don't follow him. It might be hard to, to comprehend how that could ever be loving to shove us. But even since the early church fathers like Chrysostom and others since then have pointed out that for God's people, this has a reforming purpose. It lets us see the depths of sin and what it really does in our lives and our need for God, what he can solve for us. It shows us how shallow and meaningless it is to sin. But for those who never turn to the Lord, it's the beginning of their punishment for their rejection of God that will be finished completely one day. I mean, those are serious realities. And even right here in chapter one in the beginning, we should be crying out for mercy. Mercy, God. Mercy, because that would be me. That is me outside of Jesus Christ. That is where I was. Lord God, give mercy. Looking to God for how he would rectify this for me and you, for how anyone could have faith to want to see and savor even more the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, these two sections that start similarly seem to be headings of two different ways that Paul wants to, to call us to account of how we ignore God's general revelation in our life. You know, first, through the impurity and dishonorable passions and dishonoring of our bodies. And second, through a debased mind and misordered desires. I mean, it's hard to make a sharp distinction here because there's so much overlap between mind and body and how that all works out. Yet, we can understand the basics of body versus mind. And here's our section, parents. The first clear example that Paul gives of impurity and dishonorable passions in our body is homosexual sex. This has been something that Christians have discussed for a long time, even along these lines. You know, when we look at nature, with very few exceptions, we see that male partners with female and female with male, not with the same. You know, I want to be clear on several points here. You know, first, Paul uses the terms male and female, not man and woman. In fact, scholars have noted this for decades, way before our current cultural issues with homosexuality, transgenderism, and what they said was that the way he uses those two phrases, male and female, is very significant here. It means what Paul is trying to point out is the actual biological differences and the act of sex. 
He's not trying to talk about same-sex attraction. He's not trying to talk about a disposition or struggle towards homosexuality. What Right here, what he's talking about, though we may find that in other places, is the, the choice to have male-on-male and female-on-female sex. Now, he seems to be saying that what should be obviously against God's order is male-and-male and female-and-female and female pairing sexually. You know, second, he started out this section with the generic terms impurity and dishonoring when discussing about our bodies. Obviously, homosexuality fits in that, and that's the example Paul chose, but there are most likely, most definitely, other ways that we can be dishonoring and impure with how we use our bodies. Paul chose to use homosexuality as an example here. Now, this position is not popular in our current day, but we as a church agree with Paul and with the many other places in Scripture that we should all be able to know through God's general revelation and creation in our conscience, as well as through his revelation in Scripture, that homosexual sex is wrong. It is a disordering of what God intended for us to use sex for. And if you're here today and you are in a homosexual relationship, if you're here today and you've been in a homosexual relationship, and if you would desire to be in one, I want to say two things to you. First of all, welcome. Welcome to a group of people who are disordered in our desires. That is one of the main things Paul is trying to get us all to see in this section, that we all fall in these categories, that we are all disordered from what God would want from us. We all need to bend our knee to a holy and a good God who himself desires that we would come to know that his ways are for our joy and his glory. But second, just like I need to be reminded of my sins when I'm in them, when I struggle to see it, when I don't want to hear it, I want you to hear that homosexuality is a disordering. It is a sin. It is not rightly imaging God's desires for your life. And what he desires for you is good. It is for your joy. That is what he wants us to see. Now, this is what matters here. Paul is trying to say that all sins... All the sins in our lives here and listed elsewhere in Scripture are exactly our problem. These sins are not in line with God's desires, but these are exactly the sins that Christ came to die for. It's exactly the sins that he came to die for. These these are the ways that you know that you need Jesus because you have these sins. This is exactly why we need the righteousness of God. This is why we need God to bring us, his people, back into relationship with with himself. We need God to do a work that you and I cannot do on our own. And he did that through Jesus Christ at the cross. And we are to come to him in faith and accept that. Now, perhaps for you, you didn't feel like that section is as applicable to you. And I don't need to make that argument because Paul gives us a second section, a section about a debased mind. You know, Paul uses descriptions like envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slander, gossip, Boastful, foolish, ruthless. How many of you can claim that none of those have been your problem or are your problem today? And what's interesting is we know through natural revelation that all of those things are sin. How many of you want someone to gossip about you? How many of you want someone to be malicious towards you? That is the image of God still imprinted on your consciousness, telling you that that is not a loving way to treat another image bearer. And therefore, it is sin. So we should know it is sin when we commit it. 
You know, that phrase that he says here, he says that we did not see fit to acknowledge God is what's really going on. The imagery there is that we did not hold close the knowledge of God, that we pushed it away. That's what he means by acknowledge. We push it away. We try to ignore the image bearer qualities that are still molded into us that we don't have to acknowledge our problem. And here at the very end of chapter one, Paul begins to take us back to the beginning, but shows us that it's even worse than you might've realized. He says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We don't just fail to acknowledge God by what we see all around us, the ways that he works on our consciousness outside of scripture. We look at others and say, good job. That's the way to do it. I mean, the simple observation is we want to feel better about ourselves, right? If, if, we, if we look to others sinning in similar ways and we affirm that, then we don't have to feel bad when we do it. We can all just agree together. It's no big deal. It's not a problem. Whatever the reason, it feels like Paul's wanting us to see that the situation is even worse than we imagined. In our sin, we are utterly pushing away God. We don't want to enter into relationship with him. It's as though Paul started out this whole, this whole section like a helicopter ride from a plateau. And he begins taking off and going straight towards the peaks. Glorious snow-capped peaks with sun shining through them. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And then suddenly he turns and dives straight back down the mountain. He gave us glimpses of the beauty of the gospel of Christ. He reminded us of the power of God's grace to us. But then he turns back down and descends into the dark valley and tangled jungle below. He is showing us, tangibly reminding us, how far the distance is from where we are to where God is at, to his glory and his beauty. It's like Paul is showing us the natural reality of how far the path from the bottom is to the top, something that everyone should be able to see and recognize. But it gets worse when we look at the special revelation of Jesus Christ through scripture. Not only is this path a long distance, but it is overgrown, incomplete, and utterly impassable. We cannot make it from the bottom to the top. No amount of work will get it there, us there. It is an impossible task without God. And even worse, we're standing around down there at the bottom with our friends, cheering each other on as we take paths that clearly are not headed up the mountain. And we happily follow those paths ourselves, paths that don't even have a chance of moving towards the glory that we just glimpsed from Paul. And I pray this morning that that doesn't discourage you. And one of the things that I appreciate the older I get is is the realization of this gap between where I'm at and where God is at. I don't know about you, but when I was younger and I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm like, okay, that gap, that gap is maybe just too far for me to leap, just out of range. So I do need Jesus. I need him to fill that gap. The older I get, the more I realize that that gap is like the Grand Canyon. I don't know why I thought I could even attempt to jump that thing. I mean, we might as well be looking to the sun and back and even further to the outer edges of the galaxy. That is the reality that I begin to see. And I pray that we see that that this is what Paul wants us to realize as the distance that is there between us and God. Because what that makes us realize is the beauty and the mercy and the grace of our God is big enough to fill that. That Jesus is more than enough to do that for all of his people. And that is the beautiful thing that he has done for us. 
He, we have a miraculous Savior who has done everything to bridge that gap from the bottom to the top and to bring us back into right relationship with the Father, Father to do what we could never do. That's the beauty that Paul is trying to share with us. It's the radiance of the glory of God, like a beautiful diamond that that, that jeweler set on a black background that you might enjoy it all the more. That is what we want to celebrate this morning when we come to communion. We want to come this morning to communion with wonder and awe and amazement. Amazement that God would would even look on people like us in our sin and pushing him away and say, I will save you. You are my beloved son or daughter. I am going to provide a way for you through my own son through Jesus Christ. That is what we're coming to in communion this morning. If you're here as a believer this morning, we come to take this to remind ourselves, remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If you're here this morning and you don't yet believe in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, come even now, no matter how far you believe you are from Jesus, and put your faith in him. That faith that is the distance between what you might know and what you might feel towards the reality that you're becoming aware of through the scriptures and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd invite you to do the real thing. Don't take communion, but come to Jesus. Feel free to come and talk to any leader. We'd love to talk more about that with you if you'd like. I'm gonna invite the team up and pray for us. Come and take communion during this next song and hold it. We'll take it together after the song. Let me pray. Father, what beautiful sights you are setting our eyes on throughout Romans. Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so magnificent that we do not need to be afraid to look at the depths of sin and the ugliness of our own hearts. Lord, not just the ugliness that we see in Scripture when you tell us the particularities of what would, what would be righteous and good, but even when we look at general revelation and how much we do not honor you. Lord God, thank you that you have made so many ways that we can see you. Thank you that you do love us enough to show us our sins. And thank you then that you show us the solution, that it was you. It always was going to be you. This was not plan B. You were not surprised when people sinned. You knew that's what would happen. And out of great love, you were going to be the solution for that problem. You were going to come to your people and die a sinner's death on the cross, be raised in power and sit in glory today that you may call to yourself, your people, through the power of your spirit. Lord God, would you continue to do that even now? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.